You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. It's been pushed. It's been pushed. Bracken, usually I reserve my cross-training or treadmill sessions to consume running Mm -hmm. media, right? Like I don't consume it unless I'm exercising myself and I have the patience to wait until I have a cross-training session to watch track races and cross-country races and the marathons that have been going on. But these last four days, five days, I have not been able to practice patience. I spent my Sunday morning. I don't sit in front of the TV. I told you the last episode. I, I think movies are overrated. <laughs> yes, you did. I sat in front of the t- I sat in front of the TV and watched track and field races because they're so exciting right now between the NCAA's and then like three world records being broken in one weekend. In the same it's meet. on fire right now. Like this. In the same meet, this is the time. Did you watch all the NCAAs and then the Diamond League meet in which these records were broken? No, because I do the opposite of you. I consume it right away, and then I rewatch it on the treadmill. But I was roofing. Oh. And like every project, we were on Crocker standard time. So you estimate the time the project's going to take, and then you have to triple it. And that's about how long it's going to take. And the roof was no exception. So I got done roofing very late in the week and went right up to uh, Green Bay with my family and didn't do anything the first day, just crashed and tried to recover and tried to have my back and neck knock lock up. And then finally yesterday or the day before, I watched High Rocks Live as it was going and then got done with that and went right into the Paris Diamond League race. But I still haven't touched NCAAs. So you got caught up on Paris, at least. I watched uh, one and a half races and then had to go do life. So no, I'm not caught up on Paris, oh. and I have not watched a single NCAA race, and it's it's really killing me. It's been amazing. It, it's it's super... Uh, like I never feel worse about myself than when I watch some of these athletes run as fast as they run. So yeah. So for those of you listening, if you haven't consumed this media, in the last week, the... The female 1,500-meter and 5K world records were both broken by Faith Kipyegon. She smashed. It was unbelievable watching that woman run. Then we had the men's steeplechase world record broken and the men's two-mile world record broken by Jakob Ingebrigtsen. And all of them were just like, you realize the level they are on when they're gapping an elite world-class field by 50 to 100 meters? And that's what it takes to run a world record. They were just like, it's just like a true display of like what the human body is capable of. The smoothness. The, the ones who are setting the world records look like they're working the least hard. The smoothest. All the way through the line. Everything firing on all cylinders, including efficiency. It's just very impressive. So at least you got to see that. I did. I did. I watched Jakob's two mile and then I watched, I technically, I did watch the whole women's 5k as well. And what was crazy to me is watching Laura Muir and some of these other really monster athletes, a half lap down, it seemed like 
running 1430 pace. <laughs> Just kind of mind-blowing to realize I couldn't hang for more than a mile and a half with the top women in a 5K right now in this world. Just really disheartening. Sometimes, maybe a mile. Maybe a mile right now. <laughs> yeah, Jakob Ingerbritsen ran 7.54 in the two-mile. That's 3.56 per mile in high change. 3.56 miles back-to-back. Faith Kipiegon ran 3.49 in the 1500. Just looks at me. I made her watch all this with me. And she's like, mm-hmm. isn't that faster than you ran in college? And I was like, yep, mm-hmm. it is faster than I've ever ran. And then she ran 14.06 in the 5K, which I think is more impressive than Might have been 3.49 in the 1500. 14, my bad, 14.05. Not to split hairs, but. I don't know what this. And the steeple was like, what, seven, some ungodly time i'd have to look but i didn't watch the steeple yet i didn't even see the results for the steeple yet i know the world record is broken he won by a mile you have to there's 100 meters or more yeah you have to it's crazy watching these that they can't find rabbits to make it more than 50 percent of the race the the two mile rabbit made it like five laps which is impressive but you'd have to find the second or third best person in the world to be able to rabbit the best person in the world right so I would recommend going to NCAA championship, like on YouTube, they'll play They have other sports on there where the NCAA highlights, but you can go to the NCAA page on YouTube and just start scrolling through the most recent videos and you'll start stumbling upon uh, the NCAA, NCAA championships is their, just their simple YouTube title. And then do you know where you can direct people for the Diamond League stuff? I'm trying to see where I found that. They don't post it very well. They have a bunch of bootleg streams on YouTube that'll have like crap floating on the screen to avoid getting hit by the mm-hmm. algorithm or whatever. But otherwise, you, you got to have a, a Peacock or something like that subscription where all the, the Diamond League meets reside there. And that's five ninety nine a month. Okay. And well worth it if you're a running fan. I I see NBC Sports on YouTube, just the NBC Sports channel. Like right now, I see Keely Hodgkinson's race up from Paris. So I think, yeah, NBC Sports will throw a few. But if you just go in and type track and field or Diamond League track and field, it'll throw you to where you need to be. But anyways, mm-hmm. I just thought it was like, you got to start watching these races, folks. If you're not, you are really missing out. Yeah. That's all. It's, it's just phenomenal. It's such high level of running across the board at every level right now. Yeah, and Caitlin Tui got beat in the women's fifteen hundred, which I just found very humanizing. You can't count on anything in middle distance races. So much can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Everybody's human. Yeah, it's just it's good to watch. It's good racing. Um, should we not dwell on that anymore? Nah, let's. Why move didn't you on. go to Cincinnati? Because of this family trip to Green Bay. The, 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 the Cincinnati race is five and a half hours to the south, five and a half hours to the southeast for me. And Green Bay is two hours north. So it, it changed to almost an eight hour day of travel. So if I was to rate, we went up, uh, we went up Friday evening to Green Bay. My dad and I stayed behind to finish the roof. They went up Friday morning. So we went up Friday evening. If I was to race Saturday morning, I wouldn't have gone up to Green Bay. I would have gone down instead after having roofed 30 hours in three days and then driven five and a half hours down. It got there about midnight, then raced, 
finished up. It was a beast. It was a two plus hour race. Got back to Green Bay eight hours of driving later. I would have got there by <laughs> at night on Saturday and we were leaving Sunday mm-hmm. morning to come back. So I would have missed the whole family vacation and my, and Lisa would have been, you know, in charge of all of it rather than having any help there. I mean, my parents would have helped obviously, but I would have hung her out to drive. And if I, to dry, and if I would have wanted to race Sunday, I would have had to leave about noon on Saturday after getting up there at 8 p.m. on Friday. So I would have had just a few hours with the family, waste all of Saturday, race, and then just drive back at home Sunday evening. So either way, I was putting the family in a bind, so I just didn't do it. And I was unable to transfer my my race online, so I just lost the race. Wow. It has a, a way to do it, but it wouldn't go through. It just kept popping up an error message over and over. I'd been trying for like two weeks. Wouldn't do it. So lost the race, Kirk. Too bad you don't have that Robert Coble connection anymore to fix all that for you on the back end. Nope. You've burned all those bridges and those bridges don't even exist anymore, Bracken. Down in flames. Gone. Coble's gone. Mm-hmm. No, it, I know Coble's gone. Um, you know, people always say, like, family first, dirt to dirt. Mm-hmm. Well, not dirt to dirt, but like it's a motto people live by. I, I think <laughs> not to minimalize that because it's not worth minimalizing. But you, you, I think, live that more than anybody I know. The whole family first thing for you comes before responding to messages. Very often it comes at the expense of other things in your life. Like you put family first always like you're Thank a very you. good example of that. I should pat you on the back for that. So people be like, why didn't Bracken race and da, da, da. It's like, dude, Bracken's number one priority is his family. I've seen you live that since I've known you. So like back off if you think Bracken should have raced. Well, and they're right because from the outside, it's another race that I signed up for and didn't race and didn't race or didn't complete. Like it, it, in looking at the last few years, it continues a pattern of behavior, but this one truly is just, it is what it is. There, there is no... There's no other piece to it. I'm healthy. My fitness is slowly improving. I was I was excited to do it. It just it wasn't uh, me backing out or needing to be in perfect shape or having another injury. It was just a it was a life thing. So it'd be different if there were if there was money on the line or career options on the line, but they're not paying out. Yeah, I heard the course was like Spartan of old, very gnarly, very technical, very steep, real. Big sandbag carry, big uphill barbed wire. People were like, yeah, that kicked my butt, like people who were prepared. So it would have been a good one. It would have been, if you wanted to be like worked, you wouldn't have had a way around it there. No, it would have rocked me. But So that's that. Um, All right, should we talk threshold training? I'm excited to. We've done this episode two times together, and Rich and I actually – dove deep into double threshold training when you were gone in the far east so we've done this before but we've never done it in this current climate the whole double threshold fad the threat the the norwegian method the all threshold training this came into a fad since we last did a an episode so we did episode number 65 It was on, I believe, 65, The Fundamentals of Running. We talked thresholds. And then episode 98, we talked about all about thresholds. So that was, Rich and I just did that on episode 318. 
So it just gives you an idea of how long it's been mm. since we talked about it. It's been years since we've actually dove into it. So if you want to go back and get a lot of the technical information and hear us nerd out and geek out a little bit, episode 65 and episode 98 will provide a good understanding of what threshold is and why it matters and what it's doing internally. We'll touch those pieces today, but this is a continuing episode of the quality sessions that you can do as a runner and we'll break down actually how to implement it but we've done it three this will be the third technically fourth time but never in this day and age where it's in vogue now i think you could talk about threshold running in detail every week and it wouldn't be enough and still not do it the lip service it needs as far as how impactful it is on your running right like we probably could talk about it more i know we hint at it often in episodes but as far as deep diving we don't and just to get Um, the listeners up to speed. So we are in a mini series right now, uh, a three-part mini series. We talked about all about speed training last week. This week is all about threshold training. And then next week will be all about like the long run and quality long run. So you're, you're in the middle of this one. I got a lot of feedback from the speed uh, episodes saying like it was very helpful the way it was dissected like speed training the way they looked at it their frame of mind was maybe generally incorrect thinking it was much shorter and faster than we had described it to be so go back and listen to that if you haven't um, but today we're talking we're talking the the meat and potatoes of what's going to make you a better runner today like this is this is where it's at which is really interesting because when i started researching and learning about running that would not have been the statement about threshold work Threshold was an accompaniment to the meat and potatoes of training, which was probably considered VO2 max work. Which would have been? Intervals, fast intervals. Threshold work was used to support that work. And just in the last 10, 15 years since I started doing all that, not I started, but since I started my journey towards learning all this, the running community has really pivoted towards what it considers to be the true meat and potatoes of improving as a runner and now threshold like i said before threshold is all in vogue right now and everything is cyclical everything changes everything will come back into vogue there'll be some new runner will come out and set a world record or win a championship and they'll say the key to what why i did so well is because i do nasty fast speed work all the time and then scientists are going to dig into that and armchair quarterbacks are going to say and that's right and this is why we shouldn't be running huge volume and doing threshold work because it doesn't make you as sharp and it'll go back towards that but i don't know if we'll ever truly truly get away from this line of thinking there'll be some diversions in the future but this is probably the most scientifically backed form of training yet in our sport and some version of this is here to stay. Yeah, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, who is arguably the best 1500 to 5K, maybe even if you wanted to stab at the 10K, probably as well, mm-hmm. middle distance or distance runner in the world. He's, what, 23? He's still very young. And his quote after breaking the world two-mile record was, most people train too hard, too often, and then base, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. and then have nothing available for the race. And what Jakob is really saying is VO2 max and speed training and going inside out is a bit overrated. And what is underrated is lactate threshold training and running hard, but in control in workouts. If I'm going to expand on why he said that, 
I would bet my paycheck that that's what he means. We don't need to be doing VO2 max every session, which is hard, short, hate your life type intervals under five minutes, let's call them. Um, he's saying like, hey, go run energy systems in training. And when it's time to swing on race day, you won't have used your matches in training. And I think there's some truth to that. And I'm pretty yeah. sure he's alluding towards his threshold work. Wouldn't you guess? Yeah, because he had a quote prior to the race saying he believes he does 30% more training than anyone else in the world in track and field. So <laughs> one could argue that he works harder than anyone. But what he's saying about hard is the difficulty of the intensity. And so I think it's very important to start this off with talking about what actually does make you better. If you wanted to be ready in two weeks or three weeks, you had a snapshot of time of, let's say, two to three weeks, what would you do with your intense quality sessions to get faster in that two to three week snapshot? What would be the best way to maximize your time? Probably VO2 max work if you're looking at two to three weeks. Yeah, but mostly. as fast as you could handle. Probably. Correct. As fast as you can handle. And I guess VO2 max work, I still think some people are probably scratching their heads this is just work where you're breaching lactate threshold, running basically with lactate, lactate overload in your system, getting a really high heart rate, well beyond threshold. You're just working like at a really intense rate. Let's just simplify VO2 max work as that. That's what I'd probably do if I only had three weeks. Yeah. Pat's job, my fitness. Let's call it faster than 5K pace work. Sure. Now, let, now let's say that that snapshot, you had six weeks to get as fast as possible. What would you be doing? Probably. I'd be pivoting to threshold work the first three to four weeks of that without question. And then you'd get down to some nasty stuff. Yep. Now let's say you had six months or six years. Suddenly, the longer you back out and take a look at things, the more you would turn to, I need to be healthy six months and six years from now. Because anything I burn sharp here will burn out. And I think that's what, what Jakob was referring to in terms of the question was, what are the competitors doing wrong in training? And what he said even, and I think this is a series of conversations that he's had leading up to this. A few weeks ago, he was asked about uh, some of the new 1500 meter talent on the scene. In particular, uh, mm -hmm. Yard Nagus. And he said, he's very good and there's always someone. Every year there's someone, and they're very good. But he kind of alluded to the fact that these people pop up and they disappear. And the people adopting his style of training, which he didn't invent, he's just championed, they don't disappear as quickly. And so it's anyone can reach closer to their potential if they go really, really fast in training. But what are you then six months later or six years later? And that's what he's talking about. And that's what I think we all really want as runners is to see our ceiling, but stay available on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis as long as humanly possible. Because most of us don't have a world record or Olympic title staring us down the barrel where we're like, if I could just get that, I would sacrifice the rest of my life for that one moment. Most of us, if we run a PR, it doesn't change our life. So we'd rather be able to run our whole life rather than burn bright and then burn out. And even somebody who is chasing world records and Olympic gold medals is still choosing this style of training, which Correct. just means it's even more powerful. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and you'll have to also notice, and I guess we're just using Jakob as an as a example in this conversation because he's very relevant. 
but he also hadn't sacrificed like his training progression. He hasn't over raced like a yard and a goose has earlier in the season. Not over raced, but yard was shooting some pretty big shots early. Well, Jakob was sitting in threshold mode, right? Racing a little bit less, building, you know, his tolerance there. And so it's just interesting now that it's all coming to peak racing season, how it's going to play out. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do something sort of lame here. Please do. Um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read you the definition of lactate threshold because there's still people who don't get it, and that's okay. That's why we're going over this. Are you? Were you going to probably do the same? No, I wasn't. But my eyes lit up because one of our previous two episodes about this, I googled while we were live on here lactate threshold workouts and read off of some of the oh, examples, sure. and they were just horrendous. I think one of them was oh, run. Really? What was it? 40 to 60 minutes at lactate threshold. Pace. Yeah, I've read some junk on here. Which is the definition of lactate threshold pace. 40 to 60 minutes of all-out effort. It basically just said, go race for 60 minutes at 60-minute race pace. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's funny oh, that helpful. both times we're starting with it. But last time we were starting with unhelpful internet advice. This time we're going to start with an actual good definition. That'd be the idea. I mean, I'll, I'm going to use the Wikipedia definition, which you could argue probably isn't the best place to start. I have a few collegiate um, uh, study sort of definitions, but um, lactate threshold, uh, the lactate inflection point is the exercise intensity at which the blood concentration of lactate and or lactic acid begins to increase rapidly. It is often expressed at 85% of maximum heart rate or 75% of maximum oxygen intake. The other definition that popped up right away was lactate threshold by the University of Virginia. The lactate threshold is the point at which, during incremental exercise, lactate builds up in the bloodstream at a level that is higher than resting values. We do have lactate in our blood at all times. The lactate threshold is a good predictor of sub-maximal fitness, Example, what exercise pace can maintain over a prolonged period of time without fatigue? So I think that's a, that's a pretty simple definition, yeah. but I, we're not going to overcomplicate it. You agree with that one? Yeah. Yeah. To break it down as simply as possible, lactate is a byproduct of exercise, of energy expenditure. It's just a byproduct of it. It's something your body can use as energy. You can reabsorb and use it. But only at a certain rate of reabsorption absorption can you use it. So it's kind of like you're in a rowboat with a hole in it. There's a hole and there's just water coming in. And you've got one small bucket. And you just keep taking the water and shoveling it back out. And you can keep rowing and you're fine. At some point, if the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it starts coming in faster than you can remove the water back out. And then it becomes a problem. That's lactate threshold. The point at which you're producing more than you can clear. So it's being produced at an equal to greater rate than you can clear it internally. That's your lactate inflection point or your lactate threshold. That's it. Yep. That's a beautiful analogy. What does that feel like? That feels like, oh, like when the the legs just stop moving like you want them to that burning in your stomach and lungs and heart and legs at all times where you're like, when you start breaching that threshold and you are sitting in it, that feeling of like, I'm going one way and it's backwards. Like this is getting like, it's a, it's a all encompassing internal feeling of work mm -hmm. that starts to feel unsustainable when you're breached, you're overloaded. You can't 
shovel out that water any faster. We all know the feeling like, uh oh, like we're on borrowed time. That is when you've surpassed your lactate threshold. And so that's sort of the marker that Bracken's talking about. I have two other sort of clarifying just follow-ups on the definition. Let's do it. One comes from, uh, says, well-trained runners typically find their lactate threshold at 90% of their maximum heart rate and at a pace somewhere between 10K and half marathon pace, which I agree with. I think that's what that's what we ex- we typically preach. And then the second from physiopedia.com, which I like this one. It says, the lactate threshold is a point during exhaustive all-out exercise at which lactate builds up in the bloodstream faster than the body can remove it, just what Bracken said. The only way to make up the difference is to rev up anaerobic glycolysis, which occurs in environments lacking oxygen. (laughs) That's going to be that feeling (laughs) of the piano on your back Mm -hmm. is what they're saying there. So I just thought maybe just a couple more angles for people to understand. Yeah, that's good. But the concept here is it is literally a threshold. Give your pain threshold. It's how much can you tolerate before you can't tolerate anymore. That's the same thing inside your body. It is a threshold. You approach it, you get closer and closer and closer, and then you're over. So your threshold is the point at which it tips over. Anything below that is in range of it. Right. So we've talked about what the threshold is. That's what all those definitions we're just giving you are. Mm -hmm. So now when we talk about lactate threshold or threshold intervals or threshold work and all of this, we're talking at working at a range just below that threshold, that tipping point. You're choosing to work just under. You're able to shovel out that water, like Bracken said, at just barely enough of a rate to keep that boat afloat. Like you're just able to keep up with it. You're buffering lactate as fast as it's being produced on the very edge of your body's limits. And what that does is that creates adaptation on like the cardiac uh, front. So Threshold work, we're not talking about breaching the the definition we're talking about. We're talking about working sub-threshold, just under threshold generally when we talk about threshold Mm -hmm. work. And and I think it's important to say why. All the science behind training, it seeks to put a number on your return on investment. That's really what scientific research into training modalities does, is if you're going to spend your training currency – And you're going to have to have the cost of recovery afterwards. What is your return on that investment? You're investing recovery afterwards. What is your return on that investment? And what everything shows is that it's really like this spectrum. It's a continuum where once you get within like 90, 91% of any given value, lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, VO2 max, you start to really reap the benefit of that intended workout. Once you're within like 91, 95% of it, you're getting a lot of the benefit of running 100% of it. But the closer you get to it or over it, the greater the cost afterwards of recovery. And that's why even though going a little faster than that isn't really that terribly difficult or damaging, you start to really increase your recovery demands afterwards Whereas if you stay 1% under it or 5% or 8% or even up to like 9 or 10% under that true threshold marker, you get the vast majority of the benefits, but you don't pay the huge recovery cost. And that's why, again, this training style is so in vogue right now is because you're able to do more of it more frequently 
because you're not having this gigantic recovery cost associated with it. And then when you have highly trained or poorly trained athletes, both of whom generally exist right on the edge of injury or overtraining, you don't run that risk as high and you can be available the next day, the next week, the next month at the next start line. So that progression up to threshold is a safe place to be because if you run a little too slow, you're still getting a lot of the benefit, but you don't have huge recovery afterwards. So it flies in the face of what traditionally we preach, which is no pain, no gain. Well, here you avoid the pain and you get the gain, but you also avoid the post-workout pain. Yeah, that was a really well said. It's like minimizing uh, risk and maximizing adaptation at the same side. It's the biggest right. risk versus reward system for, I think, training in general. And I also think you just brought up a good point that I don't know if I would have touched on if you didn't mention it, but we get I'm sure you get a lot of questions specifically from your athletes about threshold and where should my heart rate be in relation to my lactate threshold. And a lot, most athletes don't know their lactate threshold beats per minute, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But rest assured, let's just say my watch right now is spitting out that my lactate threshold is 173 beats a minute and 530 mile pace. That's what it's spitting out at me. Whether that's accurate or not, I don't know. But I'm probably getting threshold benefit in quotes. It's, again, it gave me, it spit out 173 beats per minute. Heck, I could be working from 163 to 173 mm -hmm. and get all the threshold benefits I need. So it's not like you need to go and ride the finest line to attain benefit of threshold training. Like there is a range in which your body is going to adapt and, and receive maximum benefit regardless as to if you're nailing the execution perfectly. So rest assured that you don't have to nail it or even necessarily be in the perfect no as to what your lactate threshold is. There's a whole range in which you can work that, that in theory yields almost the same results, correct? As far as I understand it. Is that how you understand it? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be hard to accurately say that you're much worse training at, let's say, 94% of your lactate threshold versus 99%. It's, it's, you would take a lab to show you the lack of benefit. You really won't be able to tell the difference, but you can feel the difference in your recovery. In fact, I was just reading an article on, I think it was Nordic athletes, because the Nordic sports really love threshold work. And there was this world-class athlete talking about it. He's like, and, and we, we know to be true that we must stay within, to run our good lactate threshold workouts within 87.5 to 92.5% of VO2 max. <laughs> and I just thought, that's an absurd, <laughs> an absurdly precise range to stay in, but they have lab testing every day. But even in that absurdly precise range where they're using half of a percentage, they were talking 87.5 to 92.5. That's still eight beats per minute. That's still eight beats per minute range. Yeah, it's a 5% of a, of a heartbeat range. So if you're talking VO2 max for these people might be one, for a young athlete like this, maybe 180, 190. 10% of that is 19 beats. It's 18 to 19 beats. So you're talking... You know, exactly. nine ish, eight, to, like you said, eight to nine beats per minute difference. And what that tells people, now I, I really don't want people to start to be like going brain dead here and tuning out. We're saying all this to show you that this is a safe training model. 
If you have an eight to nine beat range that the precise people want to stay in, if you're Kirk DeWint sitting at 173 is my range, is my number that I don't want to breach, I'm safe all the way down to like 165, 164, mm-hmm. which means I'm getting better from 164 to 173. So if I can do 173 and get 25 minutes of work in, but I can do 164, 165 and get 45 minutes of work in, I'm getting better at both of them. So now I get to start to play with this and say, today I want more time on feet. And I don't have to worry about not having the benefit because I've slowed down. It's all gravy. Like everything's worth the squeeze in this range. Mm -hmm. And so you can shoot for workouts and miss a little bit and still get better. Where if you're trying to run 5K pace, if you miss 5% over, you blow up and die. If you miss 5% under, you're in 10K pace and you might have missed the boat a little bit Mm -hmm. on what you're trying to do. But in threshold range, you have such flexibility that you get to play around with things during the workout. You can try it uphill and downhill where you're going to have pretty big fluctuations in how your heart rate response is is really responding to not being super precise in your pacing and you're still getting so much better with it. It's a really comforting style of training because you can miss by a little bit and still be in a scientifically acceptable range. So what is... What is what is threshold training actually doing to the body, right? What is it actually doing to help make us better? Now we've been getting a little techie here, right? We've been we've been getting it's hard not to, right? We've yeah. been talking percentages and heart rate and all that stuff. But to simplify it, like if you go back to your your hole in the boat analogy, which is perfect, let's say Bracken and Kirk are riding in a boat together. And Bracken's rowing the boat and there's this hole in there and Kirk is in here with this bucket just kind of throwing water off the side so we stay afloat, right? Mm-hmm. What lactate threshold is, training is doing is Kirk, me, in the boat with the bucket is able to move just a little quicker and just flush that water out of the boat just a little faster than I used to be, which helps us stay afloat longer and ideally at a faster rate as well. So what you're training is your little Kirk in your boat shoveling water out a little faster than he used to, which means you're going to be able to ride that fitness line harder and longer before you inevitably implode and this hole, you know, sinks the boat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So your little guy in the boat, just throwing that water out faster and more efficiently, allowing you to get more work done before you crash and burn. That's as simple as I can put it without overcomplicating it. Did that track? It did. And then for like the more tangible running version of what's getting better, there are a few things that are really beneficial to this. The first is that most people that are listening to this podcast are not world-class athletes. And so we should always, we do always have room to be better at the pure act of running. We need to just be better at running. Sure, we need a bigger like VO2 max or we need a bigger stroke capacity from our heart. We need faster legs and we need more durability, but we just have to be better at running. And in a, let's say a 5K pace or a mile pace workout, you might do 2,000 good strides over the course of your week. With lactate threshold, if you can do 45 minutes, 35, 45 minutes of total work, you might get double that time. You might get 4,000 great strides in during the course of your week at that pace. So you've just had 100% more work done on the act of running. And sometimes that gets forgotten. The faster you work, the less practice you get at running. 
And we generally, if you're listening to this podcast, we fall into the same boat, which is we're not masters at running yet. And so if you were free throw shooting or doing archery or bowling, you wouldn't necessarily be working on moving to a heavier ball or shooting from farther away. You'd be trying to get as many reps in at a sustainable distance or weight or form early on, and then you would progress to the next thing once you've mastered it. With running, we often just try to be faster because our watch comforts us. But this style of training allows you to work on getting faster while getting in double to triple the amount of reps of just practicing the art of running. And I think that first part, and that's not even like a technologically provable part, unless you got into efficiency, but just the act of running more reps at a stride that you'll use in a race is an overlooked part of what threshold training does for people. 100%. Absolutely. I agree with that big time. In fact, we preach, and we talked about this in our speed episode last week about running with your best stride, threshold running in theory allows you to run with your best stride as long as possible. You're working yeah. fast and somewhat hard, but efficiently. And it gives you time running with a stride in which honestly, guys, most of you are racing with that stride very often. Your threshold type pacing and effort stride is what a lot of you are going to be uh, seeing while actually racing. It's your default. I'm working hard, but in control stride. And yeah. that should be how you feel the majority of at least the first half of your races, especially most of you that are racing 5k and above, which is almost all of our listeners. And so, um, and Hey, if you're a 30 minute 5k'er, which the bulk of our listeners are, you're running in threshold. So yeah. this is actually very race applicable in many levels. Well, and then that's the funny part is that a lot of people will say, I just need more race specific work. I need that sting of racing. Well, yeah, you do need that. But what you also need is the mechanics you're going to use that are race specific. And most of us, when we race a 5K, you start off the line with your springy, bouncy, pretty stride. And by the time you're 10 to 12 minutes into a race, you're reduced down to my stride that I'm using to get the pace done to avoid dying which is less bouncy. It's moved away from your toes a little bit. You're sitting into your stride a little bit more. It's still fast. It's equally fast, but it's not as extravagant. That's your threshold stride. And so if you ran your bouncy stride in workouts all the time, that might be like a 10 to 20% deviation from your stride I'm going to use for most of my race. Whether you're running a 5K, 10K, you get to a marathon, it might be 50% deviation. But if you do a lot of threshold training, let's say that 40 to 60 minute race pace stride, that's only like a two to 5% deviation from the stride you're going to use in almost any race. Dropping down to a 5K, you may not use that stride at the beginning, but you're going to use it for the second half. Running a 10K, almost every stride is going to be like that. Bumping up to a marathon, it's only slightly more compact of a stride you're going to use for a marathon. So not only are you getting tons of skill rep in, you're using race-specific mechanics, which can be translated a lot easier than just running a bouncy, pretty sprint stride all the time in your quality work. Yeah, what we're telling you are there dozens of reasons why this should be the nucleus of your training plan. That's everything yeah. we're getting at. Like this is the nucleus. Everything else deviates from center and this should be the focus. If you're always wondering like what kind of quality work should I do today or what should be the focus of my quality sessions this week? Like this this should be for the bulk of your season and year the answer, right? You always come back. They always come back. You should always come back to threshold training. Yeah. Um so, okay, I think 
you know, we've been talking about it for 30 minutes and we haven't given them any specifics as far as workouts go. So yeah. I think we've hopefully convinced you as to why and what this, what this is and why it's important. Um, it's the most race applicable for everybody listening, unless you're a miler. And even in a miler, you can argue your threshold is very important. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole because it is. But right. do you want to dive into what kind of workouts, our theory on threshold specific workouts, like... I don't know how you want to do this, but I think we need to give the people some workouts. So I'm going to cast the net wide, Kirk, and then you're going to have to rein me in. Oh, okay. Threshold workouts. If you're talking, even just, let's just break it down to the non-scientific, where we're not going to worry about the millimole concentration of uh, lactate accumulation in our blood. We're not going to talk about uh, blood test strips or anything like that. We're just going to talk about race pace. If it's a 40 to 60 minute race, all out effort gives us our threshold range. How we work on that is almost limitless. When you're talking about a mile or a 5k, there's only so long you can take your reps. There's only so many styles of workout for threshold training. It's literally limitless. So I'm going to start by casting it pretty wide, and I'm going to look at the Norwegians. And it's not just the Ingebrigtsens, the Ironman, the Olympic length triathletes. Um, they're cross country. They just had a woman run win world cross country last year. They 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 are just endurance sports all across the world. They're dominating it, and typically they don't do many reps shorter than 90 seconds, and they don't do a ton of reps longer than six or seven minutes. And that's just them. They don't do steady tempo runs generally, but you see people do reps as long as 15, 20 minutes or standard tempo runs or cut down runs that can be as long as 60 or 90 minutes. But typically the interval range is from 90 seconds to six to seven minutes. That's where the bulk of threshold training in the sense that is being utilized these days occurs. And then the second bulk occurs between 20 and 60 minute continuous runs. That's a real wide net I cast. You start raining me in. Well, yeah, and there's going to be people very confused when you say 90 seconds to six minutes because mm -hmm. when the typical person thinks of 90-second intervals, they think, like, I'm running my ass off for 90 seconds, super right. hard and super fast, and then I'm resting. And the misconception here, folks, is what Bracken is saying is this may be 90-second intervals with 30 seconds recovery, but the 90-second intervals are – you're putting a governor on yourself, running fast and efficiently, but it's not these all-out hate-your-life 90 seconds. You may do 30 reps of this at right. 90 seconds. You may extend these out far. So what he's talking about is longer duration or longer, um, more reps with uh, a purposeful pace or effort. Not like what you're thinking when you go to the 400s on the track and turn your life inside out. That's not what Bracken's talking about. And then the other end, I think, is what people traditionally think of the longer style. Right. So why don't we start? You cast it a wide net. I'm going to start with the longest absolute style of threshold training that I think is effective. The furthest okay. on the spectrum. And I don't mean to jump into next week's episode ahead of time, but this is the place. I think we can whittle it down from there. I think hands down one of the most effective threshold workouts is on the far end of the spectrum and it's the progression long run. And I know that's going to seem like a cop-out answer, not a cop-out, like an indirect, like oh, you're, you're skirting the line, but I, uh, I stand on this rock. What happens when you do a progression long run is you run fairly easy to start with and you tighten the screws as you go. And eventually you run pretty hard the last, let's say half an hour or so. Um, 
you're simply put, you're spending a ton of time in threshold on the back half of your long run and you're forcing your body to do it under duress, meaning you've already put some damage on the legs, you've covered some miles, maybe you have a two hour long run and you start ratcheting down the last hour of the two hours and it's teaching your body to buffer lactate while already having some damage in the body. It's a great classic marathon or half marathon long run. That's the furthest end of the net you cast, right? The progression long run, there's no real science to it. Maybe my, may, I told you my heart rate average or my heart rate threshold, lactate threshold was 173. Maybe I'm at 162 and then 164 and then 168 and then 170. And by the end, maybe I finished pretty hard with the last mile and I average 173 right at my threshold. But I end up spending six to eight miles in threshold, technically, let's say within 10 beats of my lactate threshold at the end of that long run. So I don't know if you want to, if you're cool with starting at the far end yeah, and then whittling do down, but that's how, that's the one end. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I think the progression long run is a sneaky way to get a lot of threshold work in uh, without splitting hairs. Simple as that. It is. It's effective. It is really good at teaching you to be muscularly efficient at running while working on lactate. Um, clearance, I guess it wouldn't necessarily be the term, but lactate buffering. Because when you do it with shorter intervals, it's more on running clean, running well, and hit your numbers and then reset and do it again. But you're never super exhausted because this isn't super exhausting pacing. But when you've run eight miles already and now you start cutting down, you're doing the same internal process, but now everything's tired going through it. So your reps aren't as clean or as nice. And the longer your races that you're preparing for, the more that this is now a race-specific skill of, can I do all those same things, but with a higher oxygen demand of forcing my body to have to work when it doesn't want to be working as fast anymore? So it's combining the benefits of the intervals but doing it in a very pre-existing fatigue stage. The reason it doesn't happen as much in, let's say, the Norwegian model, or at least with the short course athletes, is that it's a lot of time on feet. It's a lot of pounding. And they will say, instead of doing two of those per week, we'll do three to four shorter sessions per week and never spend more than 60 minutes on feet. But they're not training for 90-minute to two, three-hour events. The triathletes are, and so they're doing things like this. So it's more costly, but it's also really, really effective for long-distance athletes. Yeah, you put a nice bow tie on that. And it's as simple as if you have an idea what your lactate threshold is. Like I said, mine's roughly 173. What do I do? I keep progressing on my long run. Mm -hmm. And then right when I realize I'm starting to hold around 173 or so, that's where I cap it. And then I shut it down. It's that simple. I progressed up to it. I spent maybe a half an hour or more, you know, in threshold. And when I start to see I'm getting closer, breaching, I'm working decently hard. I'm like, all right, there you go. You did your job today. Shut her down and finish. Or that's when your long run, the sign your long run should be done. Put a govern on myself, but I'm still allowing myself to work decently hard mm -hmm. for the back half of that long run. So you can... You can put it, you know, it doesn't have to be, oh, I got to run 20 miles and time it perfectly. Maybe you progress and you're like, yep, I'm there and you're at mile 16. Great. Shut it down and run easy until you finish. You don't have to be perfect with your timing. Progression long run can stop before the, the run's done. The progression can stop. Yes. Working. So where would you go from there? If you're going to walk it down from the, the progression long run. Well, I'd like, to I'd like to follow up one more point with that, which is the longer you take to step it up to your true threshold, the less time you have to spend at it. So if you take six miles to get up to it, that's already 
somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes of work just to get there. So now if you only get one mile at it, you're sitting in that high 30s, low 40s amount of time spent there, and that's a full workout. Whereas if you jump right to it, you might have to stay there for three or four miles straight. But if you do an eight-mile cutdown, you may only spend a half mile at it. But remember, if you have a 10% drift range in there of effectiveness, you've been working the whole time. So I think it's important to note that it's still super effective, which is why you say, I got there, I felt it, I held it for a mile, and I shut it down. That wasn't a mile of work. That was a mile at your threshold, but it was six miles of work to get there. Correct. And so that's why, again, these are safe workouts. Yeah. Okay. You clean it. You're cleaning up my points here. Thank I'm you. Just rounding it. I thought I was supposed to bat clean up for you, and here you're here you're bat and clean up for me. All right. Let's step it down then. So that's the far end of the net, the widest area of the net that you cast. Where would you go from there? I'd I'd, I'd move down to what people would call a traditional tempo run. Yep. Where you just take four to six miles of around threshold work. It's probably going to be noticeably slower than actual threshold work because remember we're we're balancing the variables the closer we are to threshold and the longer we are running for the more impactful that workout is both on our system and our structure so the longer we hold it for the less we have to work right up to the threshold so this could be as slow as marathon pace or half marathon pace for people that's fine but the traditional tempo run where you just click into a pace and hold it or slightly cut down for four to six miles i've done the four mile version the last two weeks i did one last night actually kirk i set the treadmill to six percent incline and i did 7.0 miles per hour for the first six minutes and then seven one seven two seven three and then i called it because at seven three i saw an uptick in heart rate now eventually seven three will progress to another mile at seven three because there's not going to be a big uptake because i'm going to be handling the processing of my of my lactate better but for right now, I saw the uptick and thought, nope, not sustainable. I've got good work done. Shut it down. 24 minutes of work. Beautiful. It's in the bank. And a day or two later, I can do this again if I want to. Beautiful. I did a 30-minute, 30% uphill threshold workout on Friday, <laughs> the day before my long run. And it was the same thing. I just watched my heart rate. And I, I set it and forget it. I set the pace I let my heart rate drift. I spent almost all of that. And as soon as I was above and I just started breaching it, I said, all right. I always round to the nearest five minutes. I'm like, all right, I got three and a half minutes left. When I hit 30, it happened to be 30 minutes. I could have been 40. I hadn't decided until I got on that treadmill and watched what my heart rate had done. And yes, it's a tempo run in quotes because I set a pace and I stuck to mm -hmm. it. But it's also a threshold run because I watched my heart rate and had a govern on myself to when it was time to pull the plug. So yeah. They're beautiful. They're so simple, sustainable. And guess what? My legs still felt good for a two and a half hour, 20 mile long run the next day on Saturday on the trails because I didn't pound the crap out of them. I pulled the plug at the appropriate time and I lived to fight another day, literally 20 hours later. Right. That's why it's beautiful. It is. And it's flexible. When you run a fast workout, and you start to tip and you either have to decide I'm shutting the workout down or I'm slowing down. That is mentally a negative to you. If I'm doing my threshold workout and I start to tip, I can either shut it down or I can slow the pace a little bit because my goal isn't to run fast. It's to have some internal change happening. 
So if I see my heart rate start to spike, I can be done and say I've got the work in, or I can slow it from 7.3 down to 7.2 or 7.1 and get another six to seven minutes in that intended zone and say, hey, I got seven more minutes of work rather than saying, oh, I had to slow down. It's I'm staying in the sweet spot. It's it's an invigorating way of training because you're always winning. Mm-hmm. Let's not get it wrong. This isn't comfortable all the time. I was not comfortable on Friday during this uphill tempo threshold work. Like it is mentally engaging. Some days you're like, yeah, I'm done. Like this ain't feeling good anyway. I'm working pretty mm-hmm. hard. Like this is real work. I we're making. I just feel like we're kind of casually like just, oh, we're just deciding like non-emotionally like, yep, now it's time. Or that's like there's some yeah. internal battles being fought along the way. Like this isn't just butterflies and rainbows and easy decisions is what I want to make sure people know. There's True. work happening here. It's not easy. But it's it's one step closer to that. It's not this great emotionless behavior, but it's less emotional than other things. There are so many workouts you and I have done throughout the years where you've got to get your pre-workout and you've got to get yourself in a mindset to just suffer. This is one of these where I can be like, man, I don't feel great today. I'm just going to get in and let the first rep start it out. Because they're not tough at the beginning. Eventually, you get to a place where it's tough, but you've been exposed gradually to it that by the time you get there, you're kind of in a good rhythm. You're like, all right, I can comfortably hurt for a little bit. This is the kind of pain that you experience that's sustainable and doesn't burn you out. There's only so many times you can go deep to the well. These workouts don't take you to the well, but they give you a taste of it. It's like somebody rubbing coarse grit sandpaper on your forearm for a long time. It's just like, I can tolerate this, but it's uncomfortable versus somebody taking a razor blade to you. It'd be a little different. That'd be the VO2 max worth. This is like, yeah, that like, God, I don't enjoy it, but I can like, I can take it. I can sit here and take it and I can sit in it if I have to. Think back to college, our 200 meter and 400 meter reps that you and I had back in the day where you have spikes or flats on and coaches counting down 10 seconds to go. And you're just like stealing yourself up, uh, preparing, you get to the line. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. I can, uh, and you kind of brace and then you take off and you, you just tensed against it. You never start a rep like that here. It's I'd like to be done, right, but right. yeah, I can keep going a little bit. You're never having to just really put on the armor for this. All right. Let's walk down the line then. I think there's the next place. So we started with progression long run. Then we talked about traditional tempo run or threshold run, however you want to look at it. Um, And a tempo run or a threshold run, you could set a pacing. And then at least if you know your threshold, then you know when to cut it. Or you can set a heart rate zone and plan to just go stick in that. And the pace is what it is going to be. So there's two approaches there, depending in my opinion. Uh, From there, I think there's two options. I think uh, the broken tempo i like to call it not the split tempo we don't need to get into that broken tempo or float intervals is where i'm getting to now is like but that's another complex issue so let's start with with split or broken tempo broken tempo is going to be where in a sense you're running longer intervals but you're giving yourself slight reprieve in between for example this could be three by two miles with a minute recovery or two minutes recovery short rest high interval length, it's going to force you to basically govern yourself with a reasonable effort for your intervals, uh, for each interval, longer intervals, shorter rest, like a minute or two minute Mm -hmm. rest on a two mile interval, let's say, for example, isn't much. You could do three by three miles, a classic marathon workout, for example, with very short recovery 
with a purposeful either heart rate goal or again pace goal that matches your threshold so long intervals i call them broken tempos you could call them long intervals i don't know how you want to describe it but that'd be the next place i would probably step down the ladder what about you that, yeah that's it and this is another one I'm, I'm doing uh the three by 15 minutes or three by 10 minutes at basically what i'd like to be able to someday just tempo at the these paces yeah. and if you're st- take go ahead well, I was just saying, if you're on the running public training plan, like you're just nodding your head at this, being like, yeah, I see this stuff on the plan all the time, especially our run-specific plan right now. You guys are just getting drowned in threshold work. So you yeah. just these are going to sound really familiar to our listeners uh, who are on our plan as well. And if you're not on our plan, go to the runningpublic.com, click coaching, click subscribe to the plan, Nineteen ninety nine a month. Go ahead. Well, last week, I think they did th- – or. Last week, three by 10 minutes. Next week, they have three by 12. Week uh, Two weeks after that, they have three by 14. That's right, they do. This is exactly what we're doing, and that's and what I'm doing in my training. I'm doing mine uphill at 15% incline right now. Uh, they, they are, this is still on the slower end of threshold. If we're talking 90 to 100% of that lactate threshold, this is closer to 90 because you can get all the work in and you accumulate the time on feet. If you worked closer to 95 or 100, you might get 2 by 10 minutes or 3 by 10 minutes. You go 90% to 95 and maybe you get 3 by 15 or 3 by 20. This is that's how you modulate your intensities here. And if you're preparing for a marathon, you're probably sticking closer to 90. And if you're preparing for a 10k, then you maybe you're moving up closer to 100, but as we start out here, we can work significantly slower than your actual threshold as long as you're within range of it. Yep. And these are beautiful because you get to reset and get your stride back together and make sure that you're doing it correctly. But they're also just short enough that they lead you to sometimes overworking a little bit. And while we wouldn't say that's normally good, it's okay because we have a range here. If we're talking an 8 to 10 heartbeat range, and if we're targeting to be, let's say, you're, you, we'll go back to your example. 173 is your top end. And these people are targeting 165 to 168. If by the end you've overshot and you're at 72, 73, 74, you're still in the sweet spot. So by breaking it up a little bit, you get to have a little bit extra push or kick it in a little bit if you want to. Not that we recommend it, but you can miss a little bit and still be fine. So I really like these these tempo intervals or threshold intervals, you'd call them. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you said that. It's not like you can't breach threshold in some of these workouts and like you're ruining everything or it's all going for naught. Like you still spent the majority of your time in threshold, even if you Mm -hmm. breach it. Let's say I did that workout three by three miles. You know what? Maybe that last three mile, I get a little racy that last, you know, mile or two and I breach threshold and I'm working more in VO2 max. I'm at 174, 75. I kick home in 76 because I'm feeling myself that day. Oh, well. I mean, would it have been better if I practiced patience? Maybe. Maybe I'm going to cause a premature peak in my fitness because I over-revved. Heaven forbid. Like, I still spent 95% of my workout in threshold, most likely. So, like, it's okay if that happens. I do that myself. And you're still not at VO2 max. Whereas if you overwork in a VO2 max workout, you're in the danger zone. So, it's again, safe. 
So should we cut down from 3 by 10 or 3 by 15 or 3 by 20, something like that? Again, we're trying to accumulate about 30 to 40 minutes of work during these workouts. That's a, that's a good place to sit in. I'm at 24 minutes right now because I'm finishing up on the rower or doing other things. And this is about what I feel structurally I can handle. But 20 to 40 minutes is great and shoot for 30. 30 is a really good sustainable point to get to. If you're only getting 20, you're either dainty like me, I have baby legs, or you're maybe working a little too fast for your effort. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you're working, I don't know, 24 minutes of threshold and you might be weird, huh? For, oh, I don't know. A race that could be somewhere around there. Coincidence. Um, sometimes you get lucky more about that later. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to give the next step in my opinion, and this is a complex one. My athletes have seen it. We've give it enough lip service. And I think the next style is float style. If you're walking mm-hmm. down the line, I think the next style is float style workouts. You can argue me on this, and it's you could make a valid one that I'm wrong. But float-style workouts are where you go back and forth between purposeful pacing or efforts, and you're never fully relaxing. For example, there's a workout that um, we stole from Tyler German, or I did, and I think it, I might actually do it this Friday myself. 3-2 float. What does that mean? For example, maybe three minutes on where you're running – a bit harder and then two minutes off in quotes where you're running a bit easier, but maybe those paces are only 30 to 40 seconds per mile difference and you're undulating in and out of threshold. It's like a, a nice wave line. You might breach threshold a little, come back under, recover in threshold. You're going to hit the bottom of your threshold in your recovery. Then you're going to go hard again and you're going to reach the top of your threshold and then recover again. And you're creating this nice line where you're in and out of threshold And those sessions can go for, I mean, Tyler German goes up to 90 minutes in marathon prep where he's basically running intervals. He's basically going, let's just say five minute pace for his three minutes hard and 530 pace for his two minutes recovery. It's only 30 seconds per mile difference, but you watch his heart rate zone and he's hitting the top of lactate threshold, then the bottom of lactate threshold, the top, the bottom. Maybe he's going over and under a little bit, breaching it and coming back. But what you're doing is you're just teaching your body to buffer lactate, even deal with it a little bit when you've over revved a little bit and then get back into buffering. The water's coming out of the boat just enough where you can do it again. And so The float style is complex and you need to know your body and your pacing and your efforts. But once you get dialed in on that, yeah, it's mini intervals in a longer session, so to speak, but it is just an ebb and flow threshold session where you're just working the ranges, we'll call it. It's it's been extremely effective for me. Yeah. So let's break that down a little bit. Now, if you were a seven minute per mile runner, for a 60 minute all out effort. So let's say your lactate threshold pace is about seven minutes per mile. Seven minutes is 420 seconds, correct? Now I'm not the math guy, but you're gonna have to bear with me here. Sure. So let's say that we want to stay within 8% of that. 8% of 420 is what? Mid thirties, 34, 36, something like that. It's called 36 seconds. That means you can vary from 7 minutes to 7.36 back and forth. That's a big enough range that you're getting significantly easier work on your two minutes off. Running 7-minute pace and dropping to 7.36 is going to feel significantly easier. However, it's still within 8% of your lactate threshold, which means we're still in that benefit window despite us recovering. 
quote unquote, recovering at that pace. Now, a scientist would argue that, listen, being within 8% of your pace does not correlate to being within 8% of your heart rate. But again, since this isn't total exact science for the everyday person, and if you're close enough at this work, it works, let's lower it to 5%. 5% of 420 is what? 21? 10% of 420 would be 42, half of that 21. Yeah, good. We'll stick with that. So from 7 to 721 pace back and forth, that's still enough that you're going to have some difference in your recovery. And if Tyler German is floating 30 seconds, that gives a little credence to the 42 second because he's much faster than us. But even if you go 7 to 720 back and forth, you're going to feel the recovery there and you're also building benefit the entire time. So you have leeway in this kind of thing and it's still a continuous run you're never giving full recovery so i think kirk that this is the right time now i wouldn't say that you work from tempo down to threshold intervals down to float recovery but in terms of the spectrum of what we're doing (laughs) this is the next one to talk about i'm glad you agree with me there and i think you said something very comforting which is like sure it is an exact science, right? There actually is like a yes. point in which your blood lactate, right? It, it is an exact science, but it isn't an exact science as far as getting a body body response when you're a sub-threshold. Like you don't have to split hairs in, you know, in my opinion. It's more like get close, hang out there. Yeah. That will benefit you. Simple as that. Yeah. And, and you learn with these workouts. The race skill of learning is important because we can't run a perfect line in a race. You're going to blip above. And you're going to have to learn how to blip them down below to balance out your above. Mm -hmm. It always happens. In a trail race, you're going to blip up on a climb. Or on a technical section, you're going to be holding your breath a little bit too much. Or whatever happens. And these workouts teach you how to constantly be right around. And what do I have to modulate in order to be sustainable for the whole race despite blipping up from time to time? It's really good race skill practice. My favorite thing about it. And it goes with my... uh, uh, the body does what it is told mentality. Mm-hmm. Like when you can control your body and your effort and you can have confidence in the fact that your body will do what it's told, it's very powerful on the race course when you need to surge to catch somebody, surge to break somebody. You turn a corner and the wind's hitting you smack in the face and you need to sink your teeth into it for a little bit to sustain pacing. All of those things, the body does what it is told. Float style workouts are probably the best workout to be like, I'm going to tell my body to do it, and it's going to do it. I love it for that reason. I think it's the quickest way to feel better. Seriously, okay. I don't think I've ever noticed improvement in a workout faster than float style. Mm. Where from the first time to the second time to the third time you do it, your recovery pace feeling changes so dramatically in just two or three workouts. Yeah. And if your recovery pace starts to like feel really easy and your heart rate is really dropping then you know that you got to change your float. If you change your float, it'll all, the float's what's going to shift. You'll, the mm-hmm. quality will be what the quality will be as far as the harder portions. You bump that float up. If you realize like your heart rate's staying up during your float, you miscalculated, maybe you need to back off. But just uh, you know, looking for that nice gentle rise and fall is what we're looking for in those workouts. Um, okay, in 10 minutes or less, let's wrap this whole thing up. So what's the next, uh, what's the next step in this progression? Well, I think the next step is the final step, which is just true threshold intervals. 90 seconds to six or seven minutes. Most often you see three to six minutes done. 
In fact, if you look at the Ingebrigtsens, most of their work, they'll do roughly somewhere around 10 by 1,000. And then they'll do another five by six minute session. Those are their main sessions. They do an accompanying 400 meter intervals at 10K pace, which is slightly faster than threshold, but they're only doing like a 65 to 70 seconds worth of work at any time. So that's where that like 90 second range I'm talking about happens. But most of the time, these threshold intervals are three to six minutes long. Short rest, we're talking 45 to 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds if you're trying to get a ton of reps in. But short rest, three to six minutes, running at 40 to 60 minute race pace. Not one rep is going to be challenging, but it's the opposite of death by a thousand cuts. It's strength by a thousand cuts. I like that descriptive there. So let's use Jakob Ingebrigtsen for an example, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're running 10 by a thousand. Okay, which yes. is a 10K worth of work, 6.2 miles. Jakob Ingebrigtsen is roughly capable of running four-minute mile pace for three miles. Roughly. For a 5K, his PR is 1240-something, which comes out to like 1248. Comes out to 404 pace, 403 <laughs> pace per mile. Let's just say. Well, let's use the best for because, you know, these are the pioneers. His father, right? The father is their coach, and he's the one who's really sort of grabbed lactate threshold training by the balls and made it, I mean, really put it on the map with the success yeah. of his kids. And so Jakob is the example right now. And, and you know, dad had time to test it on his two older brothers, and now Jakob gets to get the, the more refined version of this, and it's clearly working. Yeah. Um, so Jakob, Ingebrigtsen, let's just use four-minute mile pace, which is insane, but let's, let's aspire to be something, right? Four-minute mile pace for a 5K. Let's say that is his pacing, his PR. What pace is Jakob Ingebrigtsen running 10 by 1,000 at, roughly, would you guesstimate, if his race pace is four-minute mile pace? I want to say the first time I heard about it, it was 447, and I think he got down to four. He's down in like 436 range now. Now, I, I, I could be out of date with this because I'm not plugged into their camp, but just the anecdotes, for, let's say 435 to 450 is the pace they're running. So... For example, just so people can roughly guesstimate, you take your 5K race pace roughly and you add 45 seconds, maybe a minute for us humans per mile to that, and you're on a bunch of intervals with short rest at roughly 45 seconds slower than your 5K race pace. And you run them and you think, wow, I'm not even running race pace. Jakob Ingebrigtsen just ran, he's run 328 in the 1500 meters. Like the guy runs 340 in the mile, 345 in the mile-ish. He's running slower than race pace all the time, yet his capabilities proof is in the pudding with his top end racing. And so, yes, running slower than race pace is what's going to make your race pace faster. Add 45 seconds and start ripping intervals with short recovery. It's yeah. pretty simple. Like if you want to keep it super simple. It is simple. Anyways, I was curious if you knew the answer there. And and it's, it's important to remember that, that when in doubt, don't run too fast. You can always do more reps and you can always increase your pace if you're feeling like this isn't raising my heart rate up because in three minute intervals, your heart rate won't have time to get all the way up, which is why they're doing blood testing. They have a lactate strip that they test every rep or every other rep throughout the workout because the heart rate isn't the only thing that's telling us this and it's not the most accurate. So you can't fully rely on it, which is why we start with pace. We know that we're trying to run 40 to 60 minute race pace. So we start closer to 60. 
on the shorter reps, we start closer to 40-minute race pace. And then we let the feeling of the workout tell us where to go. We're not trying to push for times. They will slow down if their numbers rise. You'll see it in their documentaries online. Gert, the, the dad, will say, oh, too, too fast. We got to move down. You were at 4.2 millimole. Let's move down. We want to be at 3.8 today. And it'll slow down a little bit. That's the mentality of a world champion. Ugh, yeah, isn't that wild to think? Yeah. It's fascinating to me. It is. So, okay, one last question on this, and then I think we're going to have to wrap up for time's sake. But what would be the difference between, let's just say, mile repeats and threshold mile repeats? How would you approach a simple standard workout like that? A lot of people can run six minute and under mile repeats, right? Uh, not a lot, some. Let's just say, because for a guy like me and you, we could make mile repeats a threshold workout, or we could make it for sure. mile repeats. Let's just use one example of how you would approach a standard workout differently. One focusing on threshold, one focusing on <laughs> who cares what our heart rate is doing, we'll call it. What would yeah. be the difference? Could you lay them out for me? So, Well, the standard, I'm going to try to run three to five by mile, and I'm going to try to run, it's generally three to four I get done, the fastest average pace I can for all three while still recovering in two to three minutes. Fastest average pace. And there's going to be some variance between. Are you looking at your heart rate at all during those sessions? Are you even looking at your heart rate in those sessions? No, not at all. Not the point. I'm trying to run fast and hard. And in a threshold session, you might do six to eight by mile. And your goal is not to breach your lactate threshold heart rate at any point. In fact, I'm trying to run specific paces. So with with four to six, let's just say six by mile. If I'm trying to run them in six-minute pace, that's 36 minutes of work. And that's the the key starting point, I think, that's different. The other one I'm trying to see, I'm going to run five-minute pace. And I want to hit three, and maybe I can hit four. With this one, I'm saying I need 30 to 40 minutes of work. I'm going to choose the pace that allows me to do that without really exceeding like an eight to eight and a half out of ten effort. Beautiful. One, like when you're ready to really start bumping up your fitness – and you're really looking to hit the pointy end of your fitness spear, you put those mile repeats on the docket, you go rip and run your fastest average you can. You don't worry about anything else. There's no tomorrow. We get this workout done. We run fast. We run hard. It is inside and hate your life towards the end, most likely. And you're kicking home to finish that last repeat to hit your times. In a threshold workout, which would be the majority if you were to hit mile repeats, it's a controlled effort. You're watching your heart rate. You're keeping a short rest, and you're accumulating more reps to get that yes. appropriate amount of time on feet and threshold. Like I just elaborated on your point, but that's exactly correct. Like I can't, I can't pick a hole in that at all. So teed it up for you. And that kind of brings us, I think, to the conclusion here. So I think this is the time we could go into how do they balance these workouts out in order to race well. But I don't think that's the purpose of this. We can do a tying it all together episode. This purpose is to remind people what these workouts look like and why they're so effective. And so my, I'll, I'll hit two bullet points and you finish with yours. My two bullet points are they are so effective because you get more practice than any other system running a race applicable stride and because you have less recovery required in order to do these workouts and so you can do them more frequently. Those are my two big bullet points of why they're so effective. I agree with that. And I would just piggyback um, on top of that, that the reason they're so effective is you are running more often with more time in your race energy system as well. Mm -hmm. A majority of your racing 
Again, assuming you're a 5K and above athlete, if you're real fast, a 10K and above athlete, uh, you're spending time in that energy system while you're racing. That is the system you're using the most well out there, buffering lactate at a sustainable level while out on course racing. So it's like, uh, how many reasons you need to do it? If, if it comes back to racing, like this is your race work. These are your race workouts, like pure and simple. They are. And you can do them all year round without peaking too soon. They're so sustainable. Do there need to be other pieces in order to prime yourself for races? Yes. But this workout here is the one you can do any time of the week, any time of the month with no fear that you're doing damage. I'm sure there's going to be a few more questions raised. We missed aspects of this, of course. We got specific and then we kept it broad for a reason at times as well. Like it is an exact science. You do need to split hairs at the exact same time. It is not an exact science and you shouldn't split hairs. That's why it's very, so it's a very interesting subject study, but, or topic to, to dissect, but I'm happy with it. If you're happy with it. Can I close this out here? Please do. All right. I'm going to read a message. I'm going to keep the name out of it. Dude, your workout plan works. Felt so strong today. Won my age group and got first place out of all the age groups. Felt like I was just back in training for most of the race. This is not someone I personally coach, Kirk. This is one of the athletes on our online training plan, $19 a month, where 60 to 80% of our quality work right now is threshold work. This is someone who just ran a race and said, I felt like I was back in training for most of the race. That's what this style of training does. That's not powerful. That's not powerful. I don't know what is. Thank you for that message, sir or madam. A little humble brag here, but it's less about our coaching and more about the fact that this style of training does prepare you for racing with a little bit sprinkled in on top of it to get specific. Yep. And we will wrap up this series with the long run next week. And then maybe we'll put a bow tie on how to put it all together the following. I guess we'll have to chat about that, Bracken. It might be necessary. I think Um, we should. we'll We'll think on that one. All right. So that's what you got coming coming your way, folks. And hopefully you don't mind that we went off the rails on our Friday episode. I got a lot of messages about the Friday episode. Um, in particular, people messaged me about, you said it was the saddest thing you'd ever heard when I told you I just like to go for drives. And then and the number of people that messaged me saying that they enjoy going for drives as well has been very, very, very flattering and humbling. Like I connected with a number of people about their, their love for going for a good drive, Brack, in case you're wondering. So I'm not alone. There's a lot of sad people out in this world, apparently, in case you're wondering. Well, I'm, I cause ripples in my own relationship. Uh-oh. Lisa listened to it and got done and said, I knew, I knew it. I feel so personally attacked about the coffee shop thing. All those times we've sat in a coffee shop together and you were just hating it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, now I have uh, that to deal with. That's good stuff. All right. You didn't learn anything on Friday. I'll guarantee that, but hopefully you learned a little something today. So we may have made up for it. Uh, it bounces out. Mm-hmm.